Call the foreign relations meeting to order. I apologize for that. We usually start exactly on time. We've got some complications today. Uh, Senator Cardin is held up in a meeting uh, and will be here just in a few moments. Um, Republicans had an off-campus meeting and so they're late getting here. I rushed to get here on time, but I want to thank our distinguished witnesses for being here. Uh, we are honored that you would come to present to us on this topic. Um, uh, it's one of the most distinguished panels we've had in some time, so we thank you very much for this. I'm going to make an opening comment. Senator Cardin is not. Um, he's going to be delayed, and then we'll move right into testimony. Uh, but again, uh, I cannot thank you enough for being here. I do want to, in addition to the witnesses um, in our audience today, we do have David McNaughton, Ambassador uh, to Canada, uh, Geronimo Gutierrez, uh, ambassador to Mexico and former uh, ambassador who was very much involved with NAFTA in the early days, uh, Derek Burney. So we thank all three of you for being here. I'll introduce the other witnesses uh, when they begin their testimony. Today we'll discuss the regional and strategic significance of U.S. economic relationships with our friends to the north and south, Canada and Mexico. I'm glad to have such esteemed esteemed witnesses before us today to talk about this important issue. Their presence speaks to the high value that Mexico and Canada place on their relations with our country and highlights the collective understanding that the people of our three countries prosper because of the close economic ties we have developed over the last several decades. Since the North American Free Trade Agreement entered into force, our merchandise trade with Mexico and Canada has tripled. Canada is now our largest market for the exports of U.S. goods. Mexico is second, and Mexico and Canada now account for 34% of all U.S. exports. The U.S. is the largest foreign investor in both Canada and Mexico. In fact, the U.S. represents nearly half of all the foreign investment in Canada today. Likewise, for both Mexico and Canada, the U.S. is the largest destination for foreign investment. We have deficits with Mexico and Canada in trade and goods, but we enjoy a surplus with both countries when it comes to services. We can and should periodically review our trade balance with Mexico and Canada to see if improvements can be made without losing sight of the importance of mutual trade for our citizens and businesses. At 5,500 miles, the United States border with Canada is the longest and most peaceful and international, peaceful international boundary in the world, a truly remarkable fact that we often take for granted. Canadian troops have stood shoulder to shoulder with U.S. troops in numerous conflicts. We cooperate closely not only on a national level, but our respective states and provinces often have closer connections than most sovereign countries. Canada is truly among America's closest friends and allies. With Mexico, we are making the North American region the envy of the world in energy development. Canada and the United States deliberately reached out together to include Mexico in our bilateral economic partnership. We understood then that Mexico had its own challenges to address, and working together, we were able to tackle very different very difficult issues together, from migration to trafficking persons and drugs to shared water resources to security because of the close ties that we have built together. That collaboration developed in large part because of our pursuit of shared economic prosperity. 
Our businesses cooperating across borders have helped raise common concerns and cultivate common approaches to solving problems. The North American Regional Partnership is our most important relationship in the world. And we are here today to reflect on how much these relations affect our three countries. I want to thank our distinguished panel for sharing their insights and recognize, well, not recognize Senator Cardin. Uh, I will when he gets here for opening comments when, if he does want to make them then. So let me just move to our panelists. Uh, again, a very distinguished group. Our first witness is former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. Mr. Mulroney, Mulroney had a long and notable career serving as Canada's Prime Minister from 1984 to 1993. Prime Minister Moroni played a critical role in the development of the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement and North American Free Trade Agreement, and we thank you for that. I know we talked extensively about that earlier today. Our second witness is Dr. Jane Jaime, I'm sorry, Mr. Jaime Saripuje. Dr. Sarah served as Mexico's Secretary of Finance and Public Credit, Secretary of Trade and Industry. Dr. Sarah led Mexico's negotiation and implementation of NAFTA. Implementation of NAFTA. An economist by training, Dr. Sarah has taught a number of U.S. universities, uh, including Stanford, Princeton, and New York University. Our third and final witness today is Ambassador Earl Anthony Tony Wayne. A career ambassador, Tony Wayne served as our lead diplomat to Mexico and Argentina and has served as Assistant Secretary for Economics and Business Affairs at the Department of State. We welcome all three of you. Uh, would you like to take a moment and give your opening comment before they start? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I apologize for being a few minutes late. Uh, why don't we go with the opening statements and then if you will tolerate an extra two minutes on my questioning round, I'll make my comments at that okay. point. So if we could, if you could summarize your comments in about five minutes. I know that uh, the Prime Minister has mentioned he may go a little over, and obviously uh, we are more than glad for him to be able to do so. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, if you would begin, we would appreciate it, and thanks for your leadership on this issue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Senators, uh, for uh, having us here to discuss among other things, the North American Free Trade Agreement. This story, as far as Canada is concerned, begins... You might move the mic a little closer. Yes, sir. Does that do it? We want to make sure we hear every word you have to say. <laughs> well, this story begins at the Shamrock Summit in Quebec City in March of 1985, when President Reagan and I agreed to consider negotiations of a comprehensive free trade agreement between our two countries. Growing protectionism in Congress then was leading to growing estrangement in Canada vis-a-vis -vis the US. The situation was not an encouraging one. After a highly successful subsequent state visit to Canada, President Reagan reported to the American people in his weekend radio address from the Oval Office, and I quote him, we also discussed our current efforts to tear down barriers to commerce and establish free trade between our peoples and countries. The enthusiastic reception that I received from the Canadian Parliament suggests that a free trade agreement between Canada and the United States of America 
is an idea whose time has come. I pledge to Prime Minister Mulroney and the people of Canada that we're going all out to make this visionary proposal of the Prime Minister a reality. We'll do it for the prosperity and jobs it will create in both of our countries, but just as important, it will be an example to all the world that free and fair trade and not protectionism is the way to progress and economic advancement. For my part, I had to call and win a general election in 1988 on the free trade agreement. With an economy one-tenth the size of yours, opposition was ferocious. Both opposition parties, interest groups, important media leadership, and so on, rode a wave of anti-Americanism, saying that Prime Minister Mulroney loves America so much that he wants to make Canada the 51st state, with himself, with himself as governor, of course. Mm -hmm. Well, my response was that the campaign results would prove that there are not enough anti-Americans in Canada to elect a dog catcher, let alone a prime minister. And the results? Well, my government was re-elected with another overwhelming majority in Parliament, and the agreement was signed by President Reagan and myself on January 1, 1989. Predictions were that Canada, because of its size vis-a-vis -vis the United States, would get its clock cleaned and that this would be a lose-lose arrangement for both countries. So what happened? Trade and goods and services between our two countries exploded by 300%. Millions of new jobs were created in both countries, and the relationship grew to be the largest such bilateral arrangement between any two nations in the history of the world almost $2 billion US dollars a day, with trade approaching $635 billion a year. Canada quickly became the market of choice for US producers purchasing more goods than, than from China, Japan, and the UK combined. At one point, a few years ago, there was more two-way trade across the Ambassador Bridge from Windsor, Ontario to Detroit, Michigan, there was more business doing across that one bridge than America did with the nation of Japan. Moreover, our trade was always in rough balance. And in fact, in 2016, the US had a $7.7 .7 billion surplus in its trade in goods and services with Canada. Moreover, Canada and the US have developed during this period one of the world's largest investment relationships totaling over 840 billion US dollars. This was powerful confirmation of the prediction of Sir Winston Churchill in a magnificent speech that he made 80 years ago when he talked about some chicken and some neck. In that same speech, Churchill described the Canada-US relationship in all of its glory in the following golden words. That long frontier from the Atlantic to the Pacific Oceans, guarded only by neighborly respect and honorable obligations, 
is an example to every country and a pattern for the future of the world. When President George Herbert Walker Bush came in, we began with President Salinas and Jaime Serra, his trade minister who is with us today. We began negotiations to include Mexico in our trade agreement, renaming it NAFTA. The foundational document remained the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement with essential changes to accommodate the specific nature of the Mexican economy and political climate at the time. It was also unique for another reason, Mr. Chairman. It marked the first time in history that a trade agreement would exist between two mature industrialized countries, the United States and Canada, both G7 nations, and a developing country, Mexico. So what has happened since? Well, NAFTA now constitutes, with almost 500 million people, the largest, richest, and most dynamic free trade area in the world, with a combined GDP of almost $21 trillion a year, with less than 7% of the world's population, the NAFTA partners last year represented 28% of the total wealth of the world. Tens of millions of new jobs have been created in the NAFTA countries since the signing of the treaty in 1994, most of them in the United States, obviously, with millions of those jobs coming from inter-country trade between Canada and Mexico and, of course, the U.S. With an unemployment rate of 4.1%, the lowest of any nation in the industrialized world, it is becoming increasingly difficult to seriously argue that the U.S. has done poorly with its international trade agreements that create such vast employment opportunities at home and across North America. NAFTA did not happen by accident. In large measure, it was the result of the leadership and vision of three great American presidents, Ronald Reagan, George Herbert Walker Bush, and Bill Clinton. I was privileged to know and work closely with all three. They knew that such instruments are much more than documents for accountants to appraise and determine which country gained a little in agriculture compared with another in automotive parts, compared with another in energy exports. They understood that such trade arrangements are a vital constituent part of an enlightened foreign policy, not isolated variables to be picked apart and analyzed on a profit and loss basis. Such agreements succeed only when all parties benefit. And who can deny that that was the case here. Such far-sighted and generous U.S. leadership gave the world, for example, the Marshall Plan, in which colossal U.S. investments were made to resurrect a Europe defeated and destroyed after World War II. Who today would argue that this was an improvident course for the U.S inasmuch as it has ensured the creation of a united Europe, 
democratic and prosperous and free from national hostilities, certainly for the first time in modern history, thereby contributing greatly to the national security of the United States and her allies. Mr. Chairman, I have always believed and said many times publicly that the United States of America, in my judgment, is the greatest democratic republic that God has ever placed on the face of this earth. Canada is privileged to have the United States as a neighbor and friend. And the United States should thank its lucky stars every day that they have Canada on their northern border. This is the most successful and peaceful bilateral relationship in world history and one that must be cherished and enhanced by our leadership in a manner that is thoughtful, understanding, and wise. When fear and anger fuel public debate, history teaches us that protectionist impulses can easily become a convenient handmaiden. But history, Mr. Chairman, also demonstrates in Europe, North America, and throughout Asia, that the best antidote to protectionism is more, not less, more liberalized trade that stimulates both economic growth and stronger employment. As President Reagan said memorably, we should always remember that protectionism is destructionism. Another of your successful presidents, Bill Clinton, said leadership is the capacity to look around the corner of history just a little bit. Well, that is the leadership challenge confronting the NAFTA negotiators today, to conduct themselves in such a way, in an atmosphere of robust discussions, leavened by a spirit of reasonable compromise, that the product of their successful efforts will be viewed by history as a powerful enhancement of Churchill's glowing description of our great nations so many years ago when Canadians and Americans have fought together and Canadians and Americans have died together for a hundred years in the defense of freedom. If we summon the courage to defend those values that made our countries so successful, then we will have again contributed significantly to building a world that promotes peace and prosperity for all nations, both at home and around the world. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Senators. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for that outstanding testimony and uh, giving us a sense of how all this occurred. And a sense of what we need to look to in the future. We thank you so much for being here. And with that, Ambassador Wayne. Thank you, Chairman. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, other distinguished members, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me to participate. 
Economic relations and security cooperation across North America have prospered and deepened enormously since the United States, Canada, and Mexico negotiated the North American Free Trade Agreement 25 years ago. Canada and Mexico are now America's top two export markets. A large majority of U.S. states have Canada and or Mexico as their first and second trading partner. NAFTA has grown trade almost four times since 1993 to $1.24 trillion. And U.S.-Mexico trade ties have grown six times. We trade more with our neighbors than we trade with the European Union and 1.9 times more than we trade with China. NAFTA commerce supports four, up to 14 million U.S. jobs. Five million of those jobs are linked to trade with Mexico. And that's seven times as many jobs tied to that bilateral trade as we had in 1993. America's private sector has built a network of co-production and trade which has enabled us to become much more efficient, more competitive against Asian exporters, and offer lower prices for American consumers. Manufactured products from Canada and Mexico have the highest content of U.S. goods of any of our trading partners. When one takes account of that American content in Mexican manufactured exports to the U.S., for example, the U.S. deficit is either significantly reduced or eliminated, depending upon the way you do the calculations. Energy trade and production has also flourished under NAFTA. Energy security is now within our grasp in North America. If the three countries continue to develop cross-continental production, connectivity, and policy coordination, experts say that ending NAFTA would endanger this trend. Collaboration with Mexico and Canada on homeland security issues, such as terrorism, transnational crime, and border security, have also expanded dramatically. Today, for example, the depth of U.S. cooperation with Mexico to strengthen border security, control migration, and dismantle transnational criminal networks is unprecedented. For example, Mexican officials have turned around hundreds of thousands of Central Americans headed to the United States in recent years. Mishandling NAFTA negotiations, however, could cause great harm. Pulling out of NAFTA could cost hundreds of thousands of U.S. jobs, raise consumer prices, harm economic growth, create stock market turbulence, and help our global trade competitors. And security cooperation with both neighbors could also be harmed, especially with Mexico. A U.S. withdrawal would undermine U.S.-Mexico cooperation on drug trafficking, border security, and migration. It could also put a long-term chill into the relationship. Several studies forecast high costs for a U.S. withdrawal from NAFTA. Here are three examples. Potential U.S. employment losses could range from 180,000 to 3.6 million in the first three to five years, affecting many U.S. states. The sectors hardest hit would be autos, agriculture and food, textiles, services, and other manufacturing. U.S. exports to the world could decline by 2.5 to 5 percent. China, Korea, Japan, and Germany would gain jobs and GDP growth, with China potentially gaining 1.7 to 2 million jobs, according to one study.
Speaking of jobs, it is true that as a result of NAFTA, some U.S. jobs were moved to Mexico. However, the vast majority of U.S. manufacturing jobs lost in this century seem to have been caused by improvements in productivity and competition with China. This does not help those who lost jobs, however. But the big culprit is the absence of strong U.S. policies and programs focused on workforce development. And the need for such programs is only going to grow as technology continues to surge through our economy and the way we work. NAFTA has not been trouble three, free. It should be improved and modernized to take care of all that's happened in commerce and in trade agreements since 1993. This is even more important because others, like the European Union, China, and the remaining members of the TPP, are moving ahead with new trade arrangements. A modernized NAFTA should be part of America's trade offense. The U.S. has threatened to pull out of NAFTA and has sparked criticism from Canada, Mexico, and U.S. business and farm groups with positions on trade deficits, rules of origin, sunset clauses, dispute settlement, government procurement, and other issues. While the negotiations last week in Canada made some progress, major differences still remain. In Canada and Mexico, positive views of the United States already dropped significantly in 2017. A U.S. withdrawal from NAFTA would continue that trend. Mexico is holding its presidential and congressional elections in July. A U.S. decision to pull out of NAFTA or additional moves viewed as unfair toward Mexico could easily play negatively in that election and with the new President and Congress of Mexico. Mexican officials are worried that they will have neither the political space nor the support of their teams to deepen cooperation with the United States if the U.S. ends NAFTA or is perceived as bullying Mexico. The world is also watching. If the United States is perceived to pursue a take-it-or-leave-it approach to negotiating with its neighbors, will other nations be eager to engage in bilateral trade negotiations? The United States has a great opportunity to conclude a state-of-the-art trade agreement with its neighbors. A modernized NAFTA treaty can increase jobs, trade, energy security, and prosperity while making the U.S. and its neighbors more competitive in the world and reinforcing important collaboration against terrorism and organized crime. The alternative path would be costly for the United States. The best outcome is to forge a modernized and improved trade agreement. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, great testimony. Th Dr. Sarah. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks for the invitation. It's wonderful to have this opportunity and to be in the company of wonderful people like Prime Minister Mulroney, who has, I have not seen in 25 years. So it's wonderful to see that you're exactly the same. <laughs> uh, I wish. <laughs> Mr. Chairman. Me, he told me you looked exactly the same, too. <laughs> Mr. Chairman, I, I, I just realized how quickly five minutes go by, so I'm going to make five points. Okay. Five points. The first one is that uh, world trade is changing by creating regions. When NAFTA was registered under 20, Article 24 in, in, in the then GATT, today WTO, they had registered something like 40-plus regional agreements. Today, there are more than 270 agreements. And out of total world uh, trade, 
more than half takes place under regional rules, not global rules. So what, what has happened in the last 20 years or so is that the competition in trade is more and more among regions and less and less among countries. So I think that premise is very important to understand because it tells you a little bit about what is the cost of, of breaking down a region that we have created in North America. Point number one. Point number two is the integration that has taken place under the NAFTA uh, rules in North America. And most of that integration has been market driven. And it's, I think, important. I think that most of this integration that means growth inflows, yeah, and we have heard that those, those uh, specific numbers, inflows of trade and investment, uh, cycle, I mean, economic, similar economic cycles in North America, uh, uh, stability, economic stability in, 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 the, in the region, all of those things have happened mostly from coming from, mar from market-driven mechanisms, not from re regulators. And that, I think, is important because when you see the integration that has taken place in, in, in North America, it has had only two years with a decline. Otherwise, in the last 24 years, it has been growing systematically and very consistently. And the two reasons were China joining the WTO and the Lehman Brothers crisis. Very specific moments and very specific issues that did happen and slow down that integration. But if you look at the curve of integration, even taking into account these two, these two moments, it has been exponential. So the integration has already happened. Actually, people that discuss this refer to the scrambled egg phenomenon. That once you scramble an egg, it's very difficult to unscramble it. But some of the things that have happened in Mexico, the US and Canada, as a result of NAFTA, is going to be very difficult to undo. And it would be very costly to undo, and we would create a, so, a, a very large social cost for the three countries. And the, the third point is that this relationship has moved in a, into a new paradigm. We are not only selling and buying products from each other, but we are also producing them jointly. And this is quite important because it's a very different mechanism from the ones we have in the traditional trade agreements. And I'll give you an example of how that has happened. For every dollar that, there are several studies, but this is a very serious study from the NBER. For every dollar that Mexico exports to the US, we incorporate 40 cents of American inputs. For every dollar that the Chinese export to the US, they incorporate 4 cents of American inputs. So it's a completely different scheme. If, the, if there are some concerns, and I think there are legitimate concerns, about uh, the, the competition with China, it's quite clear that our relationship with the US and Canada under the NAFTA rules is completely different. It's a completely different paradigm. And I think it's very important to understand that component because it will give you a sense of the sort of losses that we could do if, if NAFTA was to be uh, uh, under trouble. The fourth point quickly is how competitive the region is. And the region has become very competitive over the last years. And we are competitive because we have complementarity in demographic terms, because we have complementarity in capital endowment terms, because we have uh, not only that, but we have liberalized energy sectors in Mexico, which gives us an opportunity, as Ambassador Wing was saying, to, in, to ensure security and energy security in the region. But also because as, as you look at the, the region, the connectivity in the region has increased dramatically as a result of all this growth. And, and convergence, which means that any protectionist measure that we take 
into the NAFTA agreement will attempt against the competitiveness of the North American region vis-a-vis -vis other regions of the world. So I think that the objective should be to make a region that is more competitive. And I just like to, to finish, Mr. Mr. Chairman, with one comment. NAFTA, that is a rules-based agreement, has resulted in this increase in integration, which means basically that uh, by increasing the competitiveness of the three individual uh, markets through measures that are market-driven, we will actually find that NAFTA is part of the solution and not part of the problem of the sort of relationships that we have with Asia or with non-market economies. And NAFTA will be a very important tool and it's a very important tool to compete even with, with non-market uh, with, with non economies. Actually, Mr. Chairman, I think that what NAFTA has done over the last 20 plus years is to make us realize that for trade issues and many other issues, Canada, Mexico, and the US are in the same side of the table. They are not on the other side of the table. And I think that is very good news for us because at the end of the day, of the day all we know that we will stay being partners and neighbors forever. Thank you all three for outstanding testimony. And I'm gonna turn, uh, out of respect, I'm gonna turn to Senator Cardin who missed his opening comments and certainly ask him if he needs extra time to please take it, but well, thank you. For well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I wanna thank Chairman Corker uh, for convening this hearing. Uh, this, we, we always have distinguished witnesses, but I think this panel is, is an, uh, just an extraordinary group of people who have done so much. Uh, the former Prime Minister, Mr. Mulroney, uh, I remember very well your leadership in Canada, and I agree with your statement about that we are fortunate in America to have you as our northern neighbor. And Ambassador Wayne, you have a, a distinguished career as a career diplomat, and, and Dr. Sarah as your leadership in Mexico on the commerce issue. So we have a, a really a, an extraordinary panel, and I thank you very much. The U.S.-Canada-Mexico relationship is critically important for the United States. It's uh, important for our economic security, and you all gave a lot of numbers, but it translates into economic prosperity for all three countries. For our national security, there's no question about that. We share a common vision about the global security issues. Uh, Canada and Mexico represent the second and third largest trading partners through the United States. For my state of Maryland, we export $2 billion, $2 billion to Canada and Mexico. Canada is our number one export partner. Uh, so Canada, critical for our security, a NATO partner, NORAD, the work that you're doing with us in fighting terrorism and in uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, in Syria, this goes on and on and on, and on governance issues. I very much recently respect the leadership of the Canadian Parliament and government on the global Magnitsky, on helping us on extractive industries, transparency. We've been together on all these issues, so it, it's truly been a, a, a partner country that has made America a stronger nation. And Mexico is the same thing. Mexico, we share so much together. Uh, I think about one of our key issues today, the opioid uh, crisis. Our partnership with Mexico on counter-narcotics is critically important to dealing with this, this issue, and that cooperation is, is very, very important. So the relationships between Canada and Mexico and the United States is very important to our country. I've had serious concerns about how President Trump has managed that relationship, because I think it's caused damage. And I, the, the first thing I can point to is public opinion. 
the public opinion in Mexico, the public opinion in Canada about the confidence of the United States has diminished. And that should be a matter of concern for all of us. I was in Mexico not too long ago uh, and had a chance to talk to my counterparts from the Mexican Senate, and they weren't very diplomatic in the manner in which they talked about the way President Trump has talked about immigration and the wall and how offensive that is to the people of Mexico. So I think we, we have to recognize there's been damage done in that relationship, and we need to figure out how we can strengthen it. In regards to the economics between the three countries, NAFTA uh, is an important part. It needs to be continued, but I think we all agree it needs to be modernized. So I don't think we should be concerned about modernization, but we have to make sure that it continues. And I put uh, on that list recognizing that when NAFTA was passed, we thought that we were being very forward when we took labor and environment and put them in sidebar agreements. Well, modern trade agreements recognize that it needs to be in the core of a trade agreement, and that needs to be modernized. Uh, on behalf of America, we need a level playing field for the competitiveness of our labor force, and that needs to be uh, in, in the negotiations. We need to expand environmental commitments, and again, these should be core parts. And we need to modernize our trade agreements as we were doing in the TPP, on anti-corruption provisions. And I think the work that was done uh, in the TPP needs to be incorporated into uh, a modern NAFTA agreement. Which leads me uh, to my last point, which will be the question that I will ask. And that is, the damage that's been done, we are talking about NAFTA primarily today, but the United States uh, under President Trump announced that it would withdraw from TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yet Canada and Mexico are part of the 11 member states that are negotiating a TPP. And without the United States part of that, I would like to get your observations as to what that means uh, for the United States uh, in being left behind in TPP, recognizing that China is actively engaged in, in United States, Canada, Mexico and every one of these TPP countries, if you could just share with us your observations of what the absence of the United States in the TPP negotiations, how you see that playing out for our region. Well, thank you, uh, Senator. Um, not being a member of the present of the current government in Canada, I <laughs> I have to be. Uh, somewhat reserved in my opinions, but I can tell you that uh, Canada, of course, has signed up with uh, with the newer new agreement with the 11, and I think that was a wise decision. Although in the back of my mind, I always realize that if the United States in world affairs is not playing a leadership role in an organization or trying to solve a problem, the consequences. Um, sometimes are less than impressive. In these circumstances, I think the hope is uh, that the illustration of embryonic success uh, by the 11 will encourage America to take another look at this and uh, at some point sign on to what is clearly going to be. It already represents 40% of the world's GDP, and it's clearly going to be uh, I think a successful initiative, but without America, it's not as great as it could be. So my hope is that eventually 
uh, America will sign on. I have no doubt whatsoever that the government of Canada made the right decision by signing on to TPP as they negotiated a free trade agreement with Europe and as they're going to negotiate a free trade agreement with hopefully with Japan, India, and ultimately China. This is the wave of the future. Ambassador Wayne, what does it mean for the United States a successful TPP with 11 rather than with the U.S.? Well, there are two aspects of this economically. One is that the U.S. products could face higher tariffs when they are being sold into these member countries. And secondly, is that the norms, standards, and rules that have been negotiated don't really reflect U.S. input. There's some U.S. input because they were building off of the draft when the U.S. participated. But my understanding is that a number of the areas that the U.S. was working to have included or strengthened um, are not included as, as the U.S. would have liked it in this new agreement. So uh, the U.S. will just have another set of, of rules and norms that are out there. And that's the general problem with all of the trade arrangements that are being negotiated when the U.S. isn't out there helping to set those best practices, to help set those norms, um, it disadvantages our exports. Do we lose market share to China as a result of this? I don't think we lose market share to China as a result of this TPP agreement. But we do have to recognize that China is active around the world uh, negotiating its own trade agreements and also with its Belt and Road Initiative, which involves investment and other types of economic relationships. They are, they are out there. Um, they have lower standards for the agreements, as we would say from our perspective. And to the degree that we're not helping set uh, models that are in, uh, that fit our objectives, that's harmful. And this even stands for friends like the European Union because they have a different set of standards and norms that they favor. And if they are expanding agreement to those around the world, it will eventually harm U.S. exports or make U.S. businesses adapt those norms when they're selling overseas. And just quickly, Dr. Sarah. Is Mexico, to a certain degree, covering its bet in the event that NAFTA does not come out the way that it wants it to, that it has other options through the TPP-11? No, I don't think so. TPP is a very important initiative. TPP with, with the U.S. is one thing. TPP without the U.S. is a different animal. And I'm afraid that part of the, part of the attraction of, the, of, the, of this decision goes with the scale of trade and the access to the markets. Mexico is part of those, this, 11, this new definition of TPP with 11 countries. But let's, we have to be clear. That is important. It's part of the diversification of our exports. But be, let's be clear, it's not a substitute for NAFTA because our natural market is North America. Thank you. Mr. Cardin, may I just uh, throw in one word, please? Sure. Uh, in a general response to your inquiry. There is an expression in French which says it all. Les absents ont toujours tort. Rough translation. If you take yourself out of the game, you're going to lose. And as I, I said, I think that without American leadership, very few things come to the fruition that they might deserve.
And I think this is a, a background backgrounder for some of the things that are going on. Thank you. Senator Isaacson. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You know, if I'd had my wish list 20 years ago when I got elected to the Congress of the United States as to who I would like most to meet or hear from in a hearing or in my capacity as a senator or representative, Brian Mulroney probably would have been at the top of that list. So it's a big, big treat for me to have you here today. You're a great leader and we're a great leader for Canada and we appreciate your being here today. And don't say that because I'm going to ask a loaded question. I just said that. But I appreciate what you said about being in the game. I'm so worried. I am a very much a pro-trade person and voted that way throughout my career. I think if we disengage from the marketplace or if we go from the sidelines to the bleachers, then we're going we're to watch things happen to us rather than be a part of making things happen for the world and be a positive catalyst. When PNTR was before the United States Congress in 1999, I voted for it, permanent normal trade relations with China. And I did because China then ascended to the WTO. And for the first time, we were in an organization that had a governing body and a judicial element to it, the WTO, where we could go after our trading partners for abuse of trade agreements or, or treatment of one another. The Chinese had been robbing the southern United States of the textile industry for years. And the very first thing we did after we went in, after they went in the World Trade Organization, is we sued China on four different textile products, won three of them, reestablished our place in the market, and gained a level of respect in the trade world where we weren't taken advantage of before, where we had been before because of our absence and non-engagement. So I appreciate your testimony. My, my belief is very strongly that we should, we should stay in NAFTA and we should do everything we can to make it work and make it strong, and I'm going to continue to vote that way. But you, you said something. All three of you addressed it one way or another. I'd like for you all three to answer. How do you, how do you as you work on the re-ratification or extension or renewal of, of NAFTA, how do you create a, 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 an agreement that can be more modernized on its own movement as it goes through? I mean, I take it we've done, there are things in NAFTA we didn't do 25 years ago we should have done. Now there are things that need to be modernized. Is there something we can do in negotiating the new agreement that can put in an element that will require modernization as the time goes by? Well, um, you know, uh, Senator, thank you. And uh, when I negotiated, for example, the original free trade agreement with President Reagan, um, and I'm getting a little long in the tooth, but uh, there were no cell phones. There was no internet. Uh, and so things have changed enormously. So NAFTA can be modernized very seriously and improved. It has to be updated and so on, but the fundamentals are absolutely strong. How can it be otherwise? With uh, the trade, what Jaime mentioned, <clears throat> which you're alluding to, uh, this is not an isolated variable, the United States anymore. You're, we're, everybody's competing with the European Union, with big trade blocks in China and in Southeast Asia, and we have merged, fortunately, into a major trading power ourselves here in North America. So when we take on the competition, we're, we come from a rules-based organization that is prosperous and powerful, the most prosperous in the world, and we should take advantage of that cohesion to bring about greater civility, greater respect for rules-based organizations around the world, and the economic clout that comes when the United States is involved. 
with its partners in making good things happen elsewhere. So I think that we've got a terrific future ahead of us if we can consolidate now. My fear, uh, my fear in what's happening, Senator, is that um, some people are interested in making perfection the enemy of the good. We've got a great trade agreement now that benefits the three countries enormously. And if you want to improve it, fine. Everybody's open to that. But if you want to make it perfect and say perfection is the way I see the world and it has to be the way I want it, then I don't think we're going to get there. And, uh, but I think that the process is unfolding and this is a very helpful uh, event here today. Any other comment? Well, thanks very much, Senator. I think, uh, as the Prime Minister said, one of the key things to do is to take account of the technology that has advanced and the kind of trade that we have today, e-commerce, dat big data flows, digital flows in, in trade across the borders. We've improved IPR practices uh, during the years. Um, we also need to look at customs processes and requirements and points of entry because billions of dollars are lost every year by slowdowns at, at the border. Uh, we do need to look at the rules of origin, a complicated task, but they can be made, uh, they can be made more efficient. And there's a lot of data out there from the industries that we should work with to see what, what can be fixed. Labor and environment do need to be incorporated and best practices from all the FTAs since then, including the TPP negotiations, and, and made a, a, a best practices in this treaty. The same thing is true with regulatory cooperation. We have regulatory dialogues with both neighbors. We can turn this into a really state-of-the-art example of how we can work together on regulation. Professional services is an area where the United States is really strong services. We already, as, you, as was mentioned, we already have a surplus. But there's a lot more trade that can be going on if we can make some progress in that area. And then finally, the anti-corruption and transparency is part of those best practices from other agreements uh, that should be in there. And I hear they reached agreement on the anti-corruption chapter uh, over this, this last week, which is good news. Thank you very much. Probably the best example that NAFTA needs uh, modern, to modernize is the fact that the, the technological innovation that was the top, the really the top innovation when we were negotiating NAFTA was the, 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 um, the mechanism to communicate was through the fax. <laughs> so that gives you an idea of how much room we need to modernize. That's absolutely. <laughs> and if I have to put it in one term, I think that we have to modernize without protectionism. Non-protectionist modernization should be the word for that negotiation, in my view, Mr. Senator. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you both. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And thank you for a very distinguished panel uh, to provide your insights. I think this hearing comes at a, a precipitous time for both economic partnerships and partnerships with the United States in general. And the President <clears throat> remains obsessed with a campaign slogan that implies the United States is happy to go it alone, questioning longstanding treaties and positions of international leadership. So ultimately, I fear that puts the United States at a strong disadvantage when it comes to building productive partnerships that benefit all Americans. It does not seem in the interest of the United States, for example, 
for our leader to routinely denigrate entire countries and their citizens. Countries like Mexico, for example, which the United States has a nearly $600 billion per year trading relationship and on which about 5 million American jobs depend. So with that concern as a framework, let me ask a couple of questions. Uh, Secretary Sierra, uh, as you know, the President has been adamant that Mexico would need to pay for a new border wall between the United States and Mexico, and his latest estimates to Congress are around $25 billion. Earlier this month, in fact, the President said he would use NAFTA negotiations to get Mexico to pay for his wall. As a former Mexican Ministry of Commerce and Industry, do you believe that the Mexican government will renegotiate NAFTA in a way that would pay for the wall? <laughs> I'm very happy that the Mexican ambassador is here so that he can respond to that question because I'm not a specialist <laughs> on the issue. But no, I'm not sure I could be very precise in my answer. But what I can tell you, Senator, is that well, if you were back in your role as the Secretary of Commerce, do you envision yourself on behalf of your country negotiating NAFTA in a way that would pay for the wall? No. no. But, but I, can, I can add one thing, may, may I, in one second? Surely. Uh, when you hear these numbers of the trade flows between our, among our three countries, it's obvious that the connectivity of the region has increased dramatically. Mexico used to export $100 million a day. Today, Mexico exports a billion dollars today. So if you want to stop that driven market force with a wall, you will not be able to stop it. And it actually will create some social cost because people benefit from all this trade. So I think the approach should be different. I understand that we have to have an intelligent border, an efficient border, but not a protectionist border. Mm -hmm. uh, ambassador Wayne, let me ask you, in your years of diplomatic service and as a former ambassador to Mexico, does this threat make any sense to you in terms of diplomatic relations or negotiation posture? Um, what I can say is that the favorable views of the United States have dropped from over 60% to 30% in Mexico. And uh, it's, I'm sure, because of the strain of critical remarks uh, being made by the United States. And that's just not a good state of affairs. We worked from NAFTA forward to really change the relationship with Mexico, to build trust and to build cooperation. And this has been quite successful, and you can track mm -hmm. that growing cooperation and gro growing trust. And in the last 10 years, uh, in the security and border security and working against organized crime in those areas, there's been tremendous progress between the two countries in building that trust, and a trust that's needed because both countries need to work against and these, let, let these threats. Let me to that question of trust, because in a recent Gallup poll from 2016 to 2017, Canadians' approval of U.S. leadership went from 60% to 20%. Mexican approval of the U.S. fell to 16 percent, the lowest it has been in a quarter century. So our policy is obviously not driven by international polls, obviously not. But I think it affects our soft power abilities to enter into agreements and negotiations with countries that have such a low view of the United States because it makes it more difficult 
for the leaders of those countries at this time to engage in some of the review that we want to see of NAFTA on intellectual property rights, which certainly need to be brought up to date, on a more vigorous enforcement, some of us would believe, uh, on labor and environment. But, but the essence of the agreement, uh, when you try to change it, you have part of it as public support within your countries. Uh, I think the Prime Minister spoke about that, even facing when there wasn't necessarily uh, maybe uh, support, and then building that support and seeing the results. So I get concerned that our ability to negotiate, whether it be here uh, in this all-important question of NAFTA or beyond, is affected by how we are viewed in the world in terms of a populace that's going to have to have be supporting their leaders to engage the United States in a way that is in the national interest of the United States as well as their own national interests. And I appreciate your insights in that regard. Senator, um, let me step back just for a second and give you a little anecdote that occurred in the Oval Office with President George Herbert Walker Bush. NAFTA was in the process of concluding its negotiations, but we weren't there yet. And I'm alone with the president, who in my judgment uh, had a remarkable knowledge of international affairs and a nuanced understanding of the world and where it all came down. And President Bush said to me, you know, Brian, if this thing works out, the way the Canada-United States free trade agreement has gone so far. 25 years from now, the ideal result might be the following. There will be prosperity, added prosperity in Canada, in the United States, and in Mexico. But in Mexico, if in the northern tier of Mexico, NAFTA generates such employment opportunities and new wealth for Mexico, as a developing country, that's what we want for it. If that happens, perhaps we'll see the day when more young Mexicans return to Mexico than come to the United States. And I believe, I may be wrong on the numbers, I think that happened last year. Now, there is an entirely different way. I mean, you're, you're dealing with two problems with one, at once, the prosperity of a great trading country like Mexico, the immigration challenge in the United States, and all done in, in a highly civilized and productive uh, manner. I was talking to a, a very, well, the uh, very prominent business guy the other day in America. He said, one of our major problems is we don't have enough immigrants. We're going to have to do something about, about our immigration policy. And I know that in Canada, we have a problem too. Our problem in Canada is we don't have enough immigrants. We need more, and I've always contended that. And I believe that you don't have a growing dynamic economy without the creative abilities and devotion and loyalty that immigrants bring to their country. Thank you for that insight. Thank, thank you. you. Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman, and, and thank you, gentlemen, for being here today. I think I've, I've heard each of you acknowledge that all agreements, all trade agreements, ought to, from time to time, be reviewed and, uh, where possible, modernize. Uh, counterparties to uh, contracts uh, in, in a non-governmental setting oftentimes open up the books and see if uh, they can find ways that might be advantageous to optimize the agreement for all involved. And, and it would be my hope that that's the direction we'll take here. 
With that spirit in mind, I, I want to remind some of those who may be watching the proceedings today about uh, some of the overall benefits to Americans of the NAFTA agreement. Uh, starting with merchandise trade, the Congressional Research Service indicates that since NAFTA's entry into force, U.S. merchandise trade with its NAFTA partners has more than tripled. Any disagreement, gentlemen? Likewise, Canada is the, the leading destination for U.S. good exports, and Mexico is the second largest. Any dis disagreement? That's right. Okay. That's reflected in my home state of Indiana uh, as well, where Canada is the number one destination for Hoosier merchandise exports, and Mexico is number two. Let's look next at trade and services. Between our three countries, the Congressional Research Service tells us that between the years 1993 and 2016, U.S. private service exports to both Canada and Mexico more than tripled. You agree with this? Yes. Pretty powerful. Let's look at foreign direct investment. From 93 to 2016, foreign direct investment of both Canada and Mexico into the United States dramatically increased. You agree with that assessment? Yes. Okay. So in summary, since NAFTA's entry into force, we've seen a dramatic increase in American merchandise and service exports to Canada and Mexico, and a dramatic increase in Canadian and Mexican investment in the United States that equates directly to more and better paying jobs for Americans. So uh, my constituents, most of them know this, and uh, it's important that they uh, continue to be vocal about the benefits of, of NAFTA. And on their behalf, uh, I look forward to working with our partners uh, in Canada and in Mexico, as well as this administration, to make sure that we don't lose sight of, of the forest from the trees, as it were. Uh, Secretary Sarah, you played an integral role in NAFTA negotiation. Uh, you mentioned the scrambled egg phenomenon, where once the egg is scrambled, it's pretty hard to unscramble it. We've seen the emergence of advanced emergency, uh, excuse, excuse me, advanced uh, manufacturing supply chains, and I don't want to trigger an emergency by trying to unscramble the egg. So um, what would happen if NAFTA were to go away uh, when we have these advanced supply chains, particularly in the automotive sector, which is really big in my uh, home state of Indiana? What do you think? Uh, it's an excellent question. I didn't mention it at the, at the beginning because I didn't have time, but one of the most important developments over the last 24 years of NAFTA has been the development of regional value change, regional, which is important. Everybody speaks about global, and it's, it's true, but in, in the regional is, is stronger and more clear. So if then that has been developed basically, as I was saying, driven by the market, because when we eliminated many restrictions to trade between our, among the three countries, the companies were making the decisions of where to invest, how to, con to contact with the other one, where to produce what, and so on. And this development of regional uh, value chains has been so strong that it's the equivalent of the, of the, of the scrambled egg. If, for the reason, whatever reason is chosen, to, to get out of NAFTA for the U.S. or to break on NAFTA, the NAFTA agreement, uh, most of these uh, uh, very efficient chains will lose money because they cross, to produce a car, for instance, in North America, I think it's, they have to cross four times, six times 
the borders. So less dramatically. The, the, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, so yeah. the borders. And if you charge every crossing with small tariffs, even if these tariffs are small, the cost of production is going to go up dramatically. And we're going to lose competitiveness shooting our own food as a region vis-a-vis -vis other regions in the world. So less, less dramatically, let's, let's assume that there were um, a, a change in the rules of origin requirements associated with this agreement. What, could that also result in, in, in some negative outcomes to both the United States and Mexico, in, in, yes. in Canada as well? Yes, like. I'll, I'll tell you very quickly. The rule of origin was created in the NAFTA, or using the NAFTA, because the three countries are in a free trade agreement in, and not in a customs union. For instance, the Europeans do not have rules of origin because all the countries in Europe have the same tariff towards the rest of the world. In NAFTA, the Americans, the Canadians, and the Mexicans have a different tariff vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. For somebody that doesn't belong to the bloc, to enter into the bloc, into NAFTA, he would choose the country with the lowest tariff. So that that doesn't happen, what we say is if you want to enter into the market, you have to pay some, you have to have some regional content to make sure that you have, you are creating value within the region. So to increase regional uh, rules of origin, I think we have room for that. I think we have flexibility for that. But the concept of having national rules of origin, that's the complication. Because that is not exactly where the rule of origin is. The, the domestic content requirement would really go against the the sheer definition of the rule of origin. I don't know if I'm clear, Mr. Senator. Well, thank you, Mr. Secretary. I'm, I'm out of time. I'll just say there are 150,000 jobs, 150,000 Hoosier jobs tied to a vibrant automobile sector. And, and uh, we certainly have to be careful about disrupting that. Thank Senator, you. if I may just, just say in response to Senator Young, 35 American states have Canada as their principal market and investor. In other words, the jobs that are created in those 35 states for foreign investment and so on come principally from Canada. A large part of the southern tier come from Mexico. I mean, there are 9 million jobs that are floating around, including 190,000 or thereabouts in Indiana. Uh, directly from, from NAFTA. I'm impressed you know that number. Yeah, uh, who thank would, you. Who, but, uh, but Senator, yes. who in his right mind would want to place this in, if I were the Senator from Indiana and somebody wanted to place this in, in jeopardy in my state, and I'm sure it would be your attitude, there'd be one hell of a ruckus. Because, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We can, we can modernize NAFTA, we can improve it, we can do all kinds of things, but we shouldn't throw it away because it's worth it. Well, look at your own state, it's so valuable. Senator Flake's state, which is, is so indispensable to the well-being of his people. And this is all a people-to-people -people, uh, deal. It you know, sounds highfalutin with NAFTA and so on and these ru rules of origin and so on, but it's really about getting jobs and prosperity into the hands of our people. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Markley. If I can get Senator, Senator Udall. Is, is, uh, okay. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, they, I want to uh, thank the panelists here. I, I've, I've listened to all your testimony, and I think you bring a 
real wealth of experience to these issues, and so really appreciate that, that lifetime effort in bringing it here to us. You know, before he was confirmed, uh, Secretary Ross told me that the NAFTA negotiations would begin shortly after the inauguration and be finalized within months. I mean, I think the term he used with me is it's all going to be over in 90 days. And then I, I met with Ambassador Lighthizer, pledged to me that he would oppose unilateral withdrawal by the United States. And here we are a year later, uh, and uncertainty still reigns. And the business community, I, I think uh, all of you know, doesn't like that uncertainty. They speak out about that quite a lot. And the negotiations drag on. I think some of you said we're in the sixth round or whatever it is. And the administration continues to threaten uh, unilateral withdrawal. So, so this, is a, this is an uncertain time. And I think it really impacts a state like New Mexico, which has a very good relationship with, with Mexico and has a, a, a good um, export um, uh, situation there, and both ways. Uh, in general, free trade agreements have been negotiated to the benefit of the world's largest corporations and their shareholders. I have consistently argued that they should do much more to guarantee labor protections and secure commitments to environmental stewardship. Now, NAFTA did some of that. NAFTA is no exception. It went into force nearly 25 years ago, and I support the effort to improve the standing uh, agreement. But a quarter a quarter century of implementation means that NAFTA is deeply integrated into the economies of each of our three countries, and you all have really hit on that here today, and that since 2006 it has had an ever-increasing benefit to jobs and small business in my state of New Mexico, and I will let our entrepreneurs speak for themselves. A gentleman and, and Dr. Sada, you probably know him. Jerry Pacheco is the president and CEO of my state's Border Industrial Association, which represents more than 100 members. And he says, and I'm quoting here, and he says it very well, and that's why I quote him, since 1994, NAFTA has been crucial in New Mexico's ability to create thousands of jobs and recruit billions of dollars in investment. Trade with Mexico and Canada offers New Mexico its best opportunity to diversify its economy. With a 350% growth rate, New Mexico leads all border states in export growth within the last 10 years. Thousands of New Mexico jobs depend on stable and thriving trade with our two North American neighbors, and this has been made possible by NAFTA." End quote. That's Jerry Pacheco. The, the Constitution gives Congress the power to regulate trade with other nations, and this committee has a key role in that power. NAFTA was implemented with laws enacted into Congress. The president cannot unilaterally repeal these laws, even if he can issue unilateral statements about his participation in NAFTA. I think Congress needs to step up and take the reins here and send a clear signal to the administration that we all welcome updating NAFTA with better terms for workers, but this whole thing that's being thrown around, unilateral withdrawal without consent of Congress is a tactic that is doomed to fail. And if the president tries it out, our economy, especially in border straits, will suffer great damage. My first question to probably more targeted, but happy to hear Prime Minister from you also on this, to, to Ambassador Wayne and Dr. Sierra, over 
25 years, what impact has NAFTA had on the economy along the U.S.-Mexico border? What has the agreement done to create jobs and new investments? And, and let me just add into there an additional question. In a post-NAFTA world, where would these jobs go? So you're kind of talking about what's happened and then what would happen if you, you know, if you in this hypothetical situation, the president says, we're withdrawing from NAFTA. I mean, what happens? <clears throat> well, first, uh, just to note, so today there are about a million border crossings, legal border crossings every day tied up with both local commerce and then the commerce that's feeding the rest of both countries, going in, in both directions. Uh, there are production hubs that have developed in different places all on the border from California down to southern Texas. Um, and on both sides of the border also, creating uh, many, many tens of thousands of jobs in those areas and, uh, and generating billions of dollars in business uh, on, a, on a regular basis. If NAFTA went away, uh, some of that would certainly continue, but it would be much more difficult, much less profitable and productive. Um, I don't know what would take the place for those border communities or those border, those border regions uh, if NAFTA were ended. Yes, I, I would add that. Uh, I would add that um, not only the border states, both in the U.S. And, and Mexico, have benefited dramatically from this liberalization, but in Mexico you are seeing, and I think this is important for the debate on labor, you are seeing how this effect is coming down in the territory. Right now you go to the center of Mexico, you see prosperity that we didn't have in the center of Mexico. It has been happening. With one very important feature, Senator, and it is that uh, the wages paid by firms involved in trade and by firms uh, involved with uh, foreign direct investment that receive foreign direct investment is something like 37% higher than the average in the country. So the gap has not closed as much as, as it should have closed, but the gap is closing because of this prospect that is being created and this you know, freedom in circulation of products and services. So the American using the unilateral exit or withdrawal would create a problem not only on the border states, but also in the states that are much more involved with, with, uh, with exports and foreign direct investment, which are creating better jobs, better paid jobs than the average. So I think it has, a, has consequences not only for the border, but for the whole, uh, in Mexico, for the whole territory down to the center. Yeah. Senator, just a quick word on that. You may remember in 1994, a very distinguished voice in America saying that if we signed NAFTA, there was going to be a giant sucking sound. I remember all, that guy. And all the jobs, all the jobs in Canada and the United States were going to Mexico. All the hockey players in Canada and the dancing girls from Vegas were going to Mexico. <laughs> well, if that were the case, how do you explain today a 4.1% unemployment rate in the United States and a similar rate in Canada and growing prosperity in Mexico. What happened, of course, is that we got together and we built a $21 trillion market with millions and millions of new jobs in North America, in all places. Mm -hmm. So I think that I can't speak for the southern border, 
But I can tell you that on the northern border, this, it's the same phenomenon, that NAFTA has been a, a great driver of new wealth, and we're learning to share it better with everybody in Canada and in America. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. I hope Senator Flake introduced his wife, who's out in the audience. <laughs> Cheryl's out there, I see her, but thank you, and sorry for running over. No, thank no you problem. for the thank courtesy. You so much. Good questioning. Senator Resch. That's a job's got to be done, so uh, I'll, uh, I'll give you the floor in a minute here. First of all, let me say, uh, uh, Mr. Mulroney, I, I, your, your statement about America should be thankful every day Canada's on the northern border, we are. Uh, I was a, uh, when I was governor, I was part of the border caucus governors, and, uh, and I can tell you that the, the feeling is good. It, it isn't uh, average, it's good. And uh, uh, so the only thing I would say to that, though, is that door swings both ways. The, uh, Canada also ought to be, thank, uh, every day be thankful that the United States is on its uh, southern border. Um, the, you know, the interesting thing about this hearing that we're having today is that uh, the amount of agreement that there is. Well, the hearings we have around here usually we're at each other's throats or the people that are sitting there are, are from countries that uh, uh, we're, we have great difficulties with. We don't have the kind of great difficulties uh, between these three countries. We're friends, we're, we're partners, as has been mentioned. That's not going to change. Uh, the geography is always going to be what it is, and uh, our cultures are, are very much alike. Um, what we do disagree on, of course, is uh, the, uh, uh, the loyal opposition has a level of vitriol against the, uh, the uh, uh, chief executive, the head of the second branch of government, that I've, I've done this all my life. I've, I've been in public service all my life. I've never seen a level like it is. And so as a result of that, it that, that persona permeates everything. And the result of that is we wind up uh, butting heads on just about everything. But when it comes to trade uh, with these countries, uh, the, uh, the, the president uh, campaigned on an issue that he thought we could do better. And I suspect uh, the people of Canada think they, we can make NAFTA better, and I suspect the people of Mexico think we can make, the, uh, uh, make uh, NAFTA better. We can. We should. And I really think uh, eventually that we will. And it will make it better for all parties involved. Uh, in my state, uh, softwood lumber is always an issue, uh, uh, Mr. Mulroney, and uh, we, we spar back and forth, but, but we get through it, and uh, we're looking forward to, to that in the future. You know, when it comes to this relationship and when it comes to trade in these three countries, failure is not uh, an option, is not a platitude here. Uh, this is something that has to be done. The egg can't be unscrambled. We can't unintegrate what's happened uh, since NAFTA started. This is a, a genie that doesn't go back in the bottle. So, uh, so it has to be done. And you're not hearing uh, uh, from members of Congress, anyone that I know of, saying we ought to be out in NAFTA. Uh, can we do better? I think we can do better. And as you pointed out, uh, well, all of you pointed out that uh, uh, people of uh, uh, acting in good faith and in good spirit can reach a conclusion and must reach a conclusion, and there's no reason that can't be done. So thank you all for your service. Thank you for your input. And, uh, and it's good to be involved in the hearing where we have so much uh, in agreement as to, uh, instead of uh, so much that we're arguing about. Thank you for holding the... Thank you. Senator Flake, I know, has to preside. And so what I'm going to do is let him have the remainder of time, Senator Rishvitz. Thank you. Very kind. Um, I appreciate being here, and I do have to preside in a minute, but uh, appreciate what you said, Prime Minister Mulroney, about um, Mexico and the benefits uh, to Arizona, to my state. 
Um, every day, Mexican shoppers come across the border and spend about $8 million in Arizona. Uh, every year, Arizona has $16 billion in cross-border trade with Mexico alone. Uh, the statistics from the U.S. prior to NAFTA, about $80 billion total, now approaching $600 billion. Uh, what's not to like? I think uh, we can all agree that this has been a tremendous success to all of us. But I wanted to talk uh, for a minute, uh, uh, Secretary Sarah, and ask about uh, whether these kind of negotiations on an agreement like this, this important, uh, operate in a vacuum, or are there political ramifications in Mexico, for example, uh, with a presidential election uh, coming up? And how does that play? Excellent question. They do not operate in a vacuum that we know. But, but one, one word of, of, of care there, because these sort of negotiations have impact in the long term. We are talking about variables that come to fruition in the long term. So to let time driving substance is, is, is a mistake. I think substance should be driving timing. And, but, but of course, I'm not being uh, naive about the political developments in our three countries in the, in the months to come. But if we are able to come up with a modernized NAFTA, non-protectionist NAFTA, no-managed trade NAFTA, within the next weeks or months, perfect. But I would, I would not like to see a scenario in which in order to deal with these time limits, we end up having a text that is not what we, the three countries, need and want. All right. Thank you. If I could just mention one, one other thing. Uh, with regard to NAFTA, it's been said that uh, the President is thinking of maybe withdrawing and then somehow in the next six months negotiated a new or a better agreement, a 2.0, in the meantime, are countries like Mexico and Canada prone to maybe move on um, if we're not seen as a reliable trade partner? Is there that fear or on that, that concern? Should we be concerned about that? Yes. I serve on a few boards on, in Mexican firms, and uh, the, the degree of uncertainty that they are facing is resulting in the postponement of capital expenditure. We are already seeing, without any change yet, just seeing the fact that the expectation that it might not work out in the years to come, people are postponing investments, which hurts everybody here. Right. It hurts the whole, the whole region. So I think that we need to, to understand that uh, clarity becomes actually NAFTA. One of the biggest contributions of NAFTA for the region, in my opinion, was to give certainty to investors, to give certainty to economic agents. And we're losing that in this period. Thank you. Thank you so much. I want to introduce your spouse. <laughs> yes, my wife Cheryl's in the audience right. here, so it's nice to have her here. <laughs> Go quickly, Senator. <laughs> All right, will do. Thank you. Thank you so much. Welcome, <laughs> Senator Markley. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the, um, I wanted to ask uh, Mr. Former Secretary Puche if you and I both have a factory that produces the same thing, and I'm in Portland, Oregon. And well, let's say, for example, I'm, I'm baking Oreos. And I'm paying middle-class American wages, American labor standards, and environmental standards. And if your factory is in Mexico and you're paying Mexican wages, Mexican environmental standards, Mexican labor standards, who's going to make the Oreos more cheaply? The, the, well, let me just bring two things. Well, don't give me too long of an explanation because uh, we only got, I only have four and a half minutes left. Excuse me? Don't take up too much time, please. I, it's a no, no, I, I, I was going to say that 
I, I have no problem with having labor standards improve at all. I mean, in Mexico, everybody wants to earn more. Uh, yes, but, but that's not my question. Who's going to be able to make the product more cheaply? More cheaply? Yes. Who's going to be, the cook, is it going to be cheaper to the, the Oreos? The lower cost of production. Well, okay, so let me, let me help you answer the question. It's such, such a simple, straightforward question. If I have to pay higher wages and higher environmental standards with higher enforcement and higher OSHA standards, safety standards, it's going to be much more expensive for me in Oregon than it is for you making the same thing in Mexico. And therefore, production for a company that owns both factories is going to shift to Mexico as it has. And in fact, I brought up Orioles because they are still being baked in, in Portland, Oregon, but just barely only because it's the last holdout for the company, the mother company that is moving all of the, the production to Mexico because the wages they're paying are such a tiny fraction of what they're paying in the United States. We've seen this with our trucking industry, our, our making trucks, manufacturing trucks. We've seen it with so many things. So if we look over the last period since World War II, from World War II through 1975, we had a big increase in the standard of American workers as per Productivity increased, their wages increased. But then as we started to do trade deals, not with companies that had similar standards, but com countries that had dissimilar standards, and Japan played a role, and China played a role, and then with NAFTA, Mexico played a role, we have seen that for now over four decades, the wages of American workers have been, been flat. In fact, flat and declining. And so um, uh, this is not a win-win if you have an unlevel playing field of its nature and complete access to each other's markets. You know, I had a, a chance to work in, in Mexico in, in 1979 and 1980. And um, I was in northern Mexico, and many of the, uh, the village areas that I was in were, were profoundly later affected by NAFTA because the low cost of American uh, chickens and corn uh, drove a lot of people to the cities, and there's been a massive, in the last two decades, uh, growth of the cities in Mexico, and in fact, the, uh, the number of those living in poverty, the percent, uh, has stayed at least the same, but it's a lot more people, so a lot more people living in poverty today. The area of the country that I, I lived in, in northern Mexico, uh, was not controlled by drug cartels uh, than when I, was, when I was there, big change there. We have, so I just wanted to uh, draw up a counterpoint to much of the conversation we've heard today because American workers have not participated in the vast increase in wealth in America in the last four decades, and trade policy has a lot to do with that. And for those who are painting only a particularly rosy picture of what happens south across the border, the picture is much more uh, complicated. But I just want to give you a, a chance to share any thoughts you might have about that. Thank you, Senator. Uh, let, me, let me quickly uh, react to that. First, uh, every Mexican wants a better income. We are a country of 120 million people, and it's not easy to increase incomes in real terms for 120 million people. Some progress has been made. NAFTA was crucial for that, as I was saying, because people that are involved in trade and investment companies and activities are earning more than the average. Now, it is true that labor in Mexico is cheaper. No doubt, and that should be an advantage for the region. But it's also true that the capital is much more expensive in Mexico. So you have a, a combination of complementarity, which can be a win-win, which is what I've been trying to say. You have a country like Mexico that has a very young population compared to the US and Canada, 
where they have the dependency ratio of half of what the Canadians and the Americans have, and that gives you a huge future for, for growth of, of labor forces. And at the same time, Mexico lacks capital compared to the U.S. and Canada. So those advantages are quite natural. So my time, my time is up, so I'll, I'll, I would look forward to continuing the, the conversation. But I think it's important for us to have a complete picture of the view. And uh, it, it is a situation where across America, workers' wages have been flat. That has been a big mobilizing political force on the right and the left in America of the fact that our vast increase of wealth in our country, but workers have not participated in it. And quite frankly, in Mexico, you've also had a very large increase in the disparity between the top wages and the, and the bottom wages, with the same percent living in poverty now as when uh, NAFTA was passed. So it's a more complicated uh, picture and, and puzzle uh, than the very rosy uh, uh, depictions I was hearing here in the room. Thanks. May I, Senator, very quickly yes, just bring one, one point uh, quickly, Senator. Um, you think that that situation would be better off without NAFTA? I do think that there are pieces of this that were profoundly affected, villages that were profoundly affected by American corn and chickens. It's, as I say, it's a complicated picture, and I'd be happy to take that up with you. Sure. Just remind you that your exports of uh, grains and corn and so on to Mexico are gigantic and that we export vegetables and fruits in a very successful manner. There's a natural complementarity on agricultural activity between the two countries. But we can talk about it later. Thank you, Janet. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Coons. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'd, I'd like to thank the panel. Uh, it's a very distinguished panel, and I'm uh, grateful for the time you've dedicated today. Uh, let me ask um, a couple of questions that are just in the matter of uh, cleanup, things that occurred to me in the course of the hearing that are of interest uh, to me, perhaps. Um, first, if the United States were to withdraw from NAFTA, um, if there were some abrupt effort by our president to withdraw and then try and force um, a, re a renegotiation, how would that impact our nation's cooperation on other issues? Uh, whether it's uh, international affairs, uh, border security, continental defense, uh, I'd be interested in hearing that uh, certainly from you, Mr. Prime Minister and um, uh, Minister uh, Sarah. Excuse me. Well, thank you, Senator. Um, it would, in that hypothesis, um, which I'm very reluctant to contemplate. Me too. But, but if it, it just for the sake of the question this would have a, an extremely deleterious impact on our relationship. Mm -hmm. Canada and the United States cooperate in, a, in ways that few other countries in the world, if any, right. do. We have security considerations. We've got border considerations. We, for example, fought together in all the wars of the past. We've come together. We're democratic countries with the same traditions um, and so, you know, we work together on ISIS. We have an exchange of security and intelligence mm -hmm. uh, that is remarkable. The United States has in Canada um, a loyal uh, and devoted friend and ally in every way, and it's been that way for 200 years. There's no relationship like this in the history of the world. There hasn't been a shot fired in anger across that border in about 220 odd years. And uh, even then, there was a couple of Irishmen, you know, <laughs> got out of line and made a little invasion, a little skirmish. And uh, 
and that's about it. In that, in that skirmish, we captured Detroit, <laughs> and we gave it back. So there's, we have a marvelous relationship, bilateral relationship, uh, the cooperation and the trust that is required between us. And it's like any sovereign nation. Your sovereignty, the, the great strength and power of the United States of America in foreign policy and in the military is based on your economy. You have an 18 or 19 trillion dollar economy. That's what generates the capacity to provide world leadership. Well, trade contributes to that in Canada a great deal. And if, we're, if that is amputated from our relationship, our cooperation in security and in ISIS and in the military and NATO and NORAD, all of these things is lessened because it diminishes our wealth and our capacity to contribute to joint or trilateral endeavors when they involve Mexico. So I would say, uh, uh, Senator, uh, that uh, this would be a, uh, an extremely unfortunate and regrettable event. Let me follow up on that, if I might, before I invite you to follow up as well. There was an earlier exchange about uh, the, the regard, the opinion uh, of most Mexicans of the United States, and we, I don't think there was a follow-on discussion about the Canadian opinion of the United States. I would argue that our global leadership, of course, is rooted in a very strong, robust, diverse economy, but also in our values. Uh, in values that we deeply share, yes. um, in a commitment to liberty and to human rights and to democracy and to free press. Um, what has the trend recently been in the Canadian opinion of the United States? To what do you attribute it? And what do you think we could or should be doing to strengthen our uh, joint leadership globally that is values-driven in addition to those that are based on our economic strength? Well, uh, Senator, my opinion of the United States is unchanged. It's been like that since I was a kid. I view the United States in an extremely favorable way, and it is a matter of values that we've defended together and fought together and died together, as I said earlier, in the defense of our freedoms. So this, to me, is very personal, and it's uh, very important. As in Canada, we realize that elections come and elections go, and new people are brought in, swept in by the voters, and swept out again. That's the way it is. Sometimes we, I suppose in Canada, because we see so much of the United States, we develop friendships or respect uh, you know, for one as opposed to the other. Uh, but we, we realize that decisions of this type are exclusively reserved for the people of the United States of America. You choose whomever you wish, and we, we work with him or her and their administrations. And we do the same thing in, 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 in Canada. There are no perfect governments, with the possible exception of my own. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, th this, is, this is a fact of political life. We are just as the senator was saying a moment ago, and as I've said, we're honored and privileged to have the United States as our best friend and neighbor. And America should get up every morning and thank God that they've got Canada on their northern border. That's the way it's been for all these years. And you know, you, you choose your government, we choose ours, and uh, we, we manage to get along very well. Thank you for a very respectful and diplomatic answer. <laughs> Secretary Sarah, if you might, and then I have one more quick question. I, I'm going to be less diplomatic because I, I cannot, I'm not a good diplomat, but uh, 
I think that all, somebody mentioned it, but I think that what you have seen over the last 24 years is a sense in Mexico that we belong to North America and that we are neighbors with the U.S. Anti-Americanism in Mexico has gone down over the last 24 years. Over the recent times, this is going up. The easiest thing for a Mexican politician to organize is a three million people demonstration against the U.S. That's the easiest thing. So we really need to work out on mechanisms, timing, and a review of things soon, because if this anti-Americanism goes up and we have elections soon, it's going to be reflected there. That's a reality. And, and is, are those demonstrations, to put a point on it, no, anti-American or that are opposed to some of the policies of the current administration? Three is there a people, distinction? Yeah, three million people don't distinguish. Don't make a big distinction. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I am I'm very concerned by reports of ongoing Russian interference, uh, attempts to influence uh, the upcoming Mexican uh, election. Let me ask a closing question of the three of you. Um, one of the ways in which uh, I would hope you would agree that NAFTA should be modernized is with regards uh, to cybersecurity and to digital privacy. Uh, when it was initially negotiated, the U.S. had not itself enacted domestic laws uh, to address uh, digital piracy. Uh, the, the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, uh, was not law here. Um, I hope you'd agree it's important that a renegotiated NAFTA come up to a standard for IP protection that's at least uh, comparable to current U.S. law, and I'd be interested in what you think uh, we should be doing jointly, both for IP protection and to protect against, uh, I think, a shared threat to our democracies from Russia. In the, in the case of Mexico, I can tell you that it would make a lot of sense to negotiate this. Mm -hmm. We have a lot to learn, but also we have to lo a lot to contribute in this process. And I'm, I'm sure that Mexico would be more than happy to negotiate on this front of uh, cybersecurity and manage data management and so on. It's only natural for us to do it. And I would add as well, the agreement that was uh, achieved yesterday in Montreal about anti-corruption, which is also very important for the NAFTA area, because the US has the FCPA mechanism that could put in an, in a, in a, in a, in an economy that also have the clear anti-corruption rules, could put Mexic I mean American players in different playing level. And the fact that now we have an agreement, a potential agreement on anti-corruption is fundamental and is very important. I second that motion, Senator. It's, uh, it's obvious that um, this is the kind of intimate cooperation that only comes from the trust generated uh, through our wonderful trading relationship. Uh, people see the relationship not only as something esoteric and to be read about in the newspapers, but as something that provides for them and their families and their children every morning. Uh, you know, Senator, the uh, friend, the senator from, from Indiana, Senator Young, there are 190,000 jobs in, in his state that depend, depend some directly on Canada. We, we take that seriously. This is serious. I think there are 28,000 or so in your state, Senator. And we take that seriously because it affects the families, the kids, and so on. And we're aware of our responsibility in that regard. And we're also aware of the necessary action that we've got to take in the area you mentioned to keep those safe. Thank you. Ambassador, a closing comment? Just add that um, I fully agree that we should update this agreement 
in, in protection of intellectual property. In fact, it should be a gold standard agreement. This is, we have two negotiations going on now, a relook at the U.S.-Korea negotiation and this one. They're the only two the United States is participating in. We need to establish as high and as forward-looking standards as we can in this modernization of this treaty because it can become a model for others in the future. That's very important. I'm not sure exactly how cybersecurity should be incorporated, but um, we should look at that, should be looked at very carefully. And even not only in the treaty, there should be trilateral cooperation to tackle these cybersecurity threats because people are going to go around and through and th in any way they can get into North America. I think that's true. And you are correct that uh, there is a danger of Russian interference and they are using their media outlets to target messages. There's no question about that everywhere that they can, including in Mexico. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank, Thank you. you very much to the panel. I want to thank our uh, three outstanding witnesses for being here today, and I don't think we could have had a better panel uh, nor a better session to discuss the, the benefits of NAFTA, but also those things that should be modernized. It's my sense that modernization is where the administration is heading. Um, I think that the three of you have laid out aspirational goals to uh, cause this agreement not only to improve, but to be a gold standard, as you just mentioned. And I hope with the input of senators and House members on both sides of the aisle that are pushing for that, uh, and just because of their own concerns um, about, uh, about trade uh, and the relationship that we have between our three countries, um, that uh, that is where we're going. So I thank you so much. Um, we have typically written questions that come in. I know that each of you have uh, plenty to do, but we're going to leave the record open until the close of business on Friday. And to the extent you might answer those questions for us, we would greatly appreciate it. Again, I cannot imagine a better panel nor a better hearing. Um, and that's only because of uh, the outstanding witnesses we have. We thank you. And with that, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you, Senator. Thank you.